0: Some of you might recognize that great intro from the past. It's the old player intro from the Rockets championship years, and it's the perfect way to start our Rockets Classic podcast. I'm Robert Land from Houston Sports Talk, and in the past couple of years, we've had some amazing conversations with Rockets legends like Calvin Murphy and Robert Reed, plus fan favorites like Chucky Brown and Moochie Norris. In this show You're going to hear the absolute best of those conversations, which also include former Rockets beat writers Fran Blindberry and Robert Falcoff. Got to start this baby off with championship talk and a member of Clutch City, the sequel. I'm talking about Chucky Brown. Keep in mind that Chucky had just arrived in Houston when the Drexler trade happened. Otis Thorpe was a part of that deal, and that's when everything opened up for Chucky Brown. All of a sudden, they need somebody who could play some minutes at the power forward. I'll let Chucky, who was on the phone with us from his home in North Carolina, pick up the story from there.
1: It opened up a role for me, especially because uh, Carl Herrera, who was on the team at the time, uh he had gotten injured. Once they made the trade for Otis, when Otis got traded, that opened up more room uh for me to be be able to play myself and uh Pete Kilcutt. So that was uh that was a big moment for us. Or for for me you know, in my career anyway.
0: When you think about the championship run, what are the first memories that come to mind for you? More specifically, are there are there ones that come to mind that we may not have seen as fans, but you remember from the behind the scenes or in the locker room?
1: Dream had like a blood clot in his leg or something like that. And uh, I think Vernon, Vernon had gotten ill. Something happened to Vernon. Uh, he was injured. And it was just like we had went through a, a period where there was a lot of injuries. And, uh, that also enabled me to to play a lot. But I think that part of the year where everybody was getting hurt, you know, guys that, you know, like Tim Bro was, was uh, another guy who didn't re- didn't see much playing time, but was able to get out on the floor and play a little bit. And, uh, you know, Pete, CJ, uh, Charles Jones, you know, we weren't, we weren't accustomed to those big minutes, but, uh, we had to get them. And that helped us, you know, when we got into the playoffs, because we played a lot of meaningful minutes during the season against quality teams like Phoenix, Utah, and San Antonio. So when we got into the playoffs, and had to see them again. It was no big deal.
2: There are a couple of things that stand out in the playoffs that we all remember. Of course, the Mario Ellie shot, the kiss of death, and then, of course, when Akeem dominated over David Robinson after David Robinson gets the MVP award. But there's one thing that I, I always remember, too, is when... The Rockets were down 3-1, and, and Clyde Drexler was ill. Being able to go to Phoenix and and win that right. game, that was that was a huge one. People forget about it a right.
1: lot. Yeah, that was a big game. That was where I had, I think, my best game of the playoffs. Uh, I think we we ended up winning in overtime. And, you know, I just looked at it as an opportunity. Well, somebody goes down, there's an opportunity for another guy to step up. And I just, like before that game, I remember thinking, like, you know, well, Clyde's not going to play, so you know, why not me? Why not, why not I be the guy to step up and, you know, do something good for the team? So I think I had my best playoff game in that, that game five. And it was scary because, you know, Clyde wasn't going to, Clyde wasn't feeling well. We knew that going in. So, uh, you know, I mean, we just, we just, you know, like I said, I, I just felt like, why not me? So, and I had my best game. And that was, I think after that was when Charles Barkley had, uh, so much to say about me, as far as I didn't belong in the league or some crazy mess he said. But uh, you know that that was that was a big moment for myself and for the team.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about Akeem. I know RG wants to ask you about the you know how he compares to the other guys in a second. But the first question I had on Akeem was just describe what it's like to play with Akeem Olajuwon. When you tell your grandkids, what are you going to tell them about playing with Dream?
1: Uh, how easy it was because. You know, you could get beat on defense, and Dream was there to help you. You know, and and we knew that. You know, as long as we helped him, he would continue to help us. So once you got beat, you knew he was coming. So you knew to get to his man, so that you know his man wouldn't get an easy dunk or because or then he'd be upset, and then you know a, a big guy would be hesitant to come and help. Then you know if nobody's gonna help him, you know why why should I, you know, risk helping you? So. I think that was a good thing about that team, uh, was uh, that we helped each other. But, you know, playing with Dream, he just made things so much easier. And, and, you know, my field goal percentage was probably the best of my career while I was playing with Houston because Dream would get double teamed a lot and I would just cut to the basket and Dream would just drop the ball off and I was getting layups and dunks. So, um, you know, he just made it so easy.
2: Everybody in Houston, we're all partial to Akeem Olajuwon and his greatness. But it seems like in recent years here, been talk about, you played against Shaquille O'Neal and even big Mm -hmm. men like David Robinson and and now Tim Duncan with all his championships. Kind of Akeem gets lost a little bit in the shuffle there. Do you feel that he was the best you ever played with or, or or against? And how do you compare him to those other big men at the time?
1: I definitely think he was the best guy uh, that I played with. And I played with a lot of guys playing on uh, 12 different teams. And I think Dream was the, by far the best guy uh, that I played with. As far as the comparisons, you know, Shaquille O'Neal was a great player. He was a powerful player, but... Shaquille O'Neal didn't block the shots like Dream, and I don't think Shaquille O'Neal rebounded like Dream. You know, and uh, I thought Dream was simply just a better all-around player. Um, Shaq was probably the the more powerful, stronger guy, but as far as overall player, shot blocking, rebounding, and passing, and all that kind of stuff, I think there's no comparison. You know, with with uh, with Dream as far as that goes. You know, I think Dream is by far better.
0: Yeah, you just mentioned it. You were on 12 different teams. You hold the NBA record for most teams played for. There's there's three other guys tied for the record with you. And you also played with or played for some of the great coaches, Lenny Wilkins, Greg Popovich, Jim right. Valvano, Rudy, of course. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you which was the best <laughs> coach, but but I'd love to know between Jimmy V and Rudy T. Who was the most animated on the sideline? Seems like there was a little bit of similarities between those two guys.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Coach V was definitely, you know, animated, and, and uh, he he knew how to push your buttons. He knew how to push your buttons and get the most out of you. With Rudy, it seemed like you scored. It was like it was like you was his son scoring. You know, he he kind of like really got emotional. Uh, with you and emotionally attached to you, I, I still remember the phone call when I got traded, and how that you know I had been traded before, but no one has ever called me and given me you know the respect of a you know a top tier guy saying hey look this is what's going on this is what we did and Rudy did that so you know I got nothing but respect and love for Rudy uh, because he you know he respected me and. And, you know, he always loved, you know, it seemed like he always loved when I was out there playing well. Even when I wasn't playing well, he always would say, you know, that's all right. You get him next time. You know, he used to call me Chuck Brown. That's all right, Chuck Brown. You know, you get him next time. You're okay. You know, he always seemed encouraging. And, uh, you know, that, that always made you want to go that extra mile. I mean, even if you were already playing hard, you wanted to go that extra mile, you know, where you, you, you know, you, you jump in front of a truck for the guy or something. You know, you just felt like that about Rudy.
0: Do you still keep in touch with a lot of the guys from the championship team?
1: I talk to quite a few. I talk to Sam uh, Cassell most of the time, Uh, Kenny every now and then, Uh, Robert every now and then. Every Blue Moon, talk to Robert. Uh, but, But Sam is the guy that I talk to most of the time. I talk to Tim Bro. From time to time, as well, talked to Pete Chilcutt in the past few years. Haven't talked to Charles Jones in a while. Have have lost contact with him. But those are those are the main guys. Mario, talk to Mario a little bit. You know, from time to time, Mario. But Sam Cassell is the guy. You know, Sam and I, we see each other and, and talk to each other and laugh and joke and you know maybe go out to dinner sometime. But Sam is the guy that I talk to most, more than anybody. Haven't seen Dream. Uh, in a while, I haven't seen Clyde in a while, but I look forward to maybe running into them at some point.
0: I was hoping you were going to say I talked to Kenny a lot because uh, <laughs> Ken, Ken, Kenny might might uh, have an ear to Charles. And, and you were traded for to, for Charles, of course, in that in that big right. deal and you know Ch- Charles doesn't seem to like the rockets very much uh, if you watch the TNT broadcast at all what what is your take on all that charles kind of uh he he has not a lot of good feelings for the rockets organization
1: i think he's had a, he's got a beef with the analytics part of the game and i mean there's a place for it uh i don't think that you know analytics goes into Uh, building your team as far as like, you know, when you get guys like, you know, Damian Lillards and LeBron James, those guys are good and they can play and there's nothing numbers can tell me about them. You know what I mean? So I I disagree with the, uh, you know, just saying that it's it's total garbage. There is a place for analytics in the game, but, um, you know, I, I think it's just crazy, uh, uh, the argument. You know, it's somebody's job. So I, I would never try to uh, say that somebody's job is meaningless. You know, every every job is is very meaningful. If you if you got a bunch of poop on the ground, there's somebody picking up that poop. So, you know, that their, their job is meaningful. So, you know, everybody has a meaningful job. You know, whether you, whether someone else thinks so or not.
0: Well, since you're on Tobacco Row, we talked about Valvano, and there and there a pretty good story about how he. When about recruiting you to North Carolina state,
1: oh yeah, 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 I got a good story. um He was recruiting me, and uh when they did the home visit you know, he came down, I think it was about three of the coaches, him and three of the coaches came down to my house, and you know my mother had made food and stuff, so you know we had never really been through this process before. we didn't know nothing about it it's not it wasn't as big as it is now so but um but he came in the house and uh, we were talking about basketball. My father was never a basketball guy. You know, my father grew up, and um, you know, he only had as far as like an eighth grade education. Went into the service for World War II, got an education through going through the military. He was big on education. So you know, Coach V was talking basketball, and then he came in and started moving the furniture around. And I looked the first place I looked was at my father because I'm like dude, you know, my father's crazy. Why are you in here moving around our furniture talking about basketball? So he came in there moving the furniture around showing us plays and stuff like that. But, you know, my father had a a good sense of humor, so he kind of just let that ride. And, you know, it just came, it became a good relationship uh, after that.
0: I know a lot of Rockets fans might not know this. You're, you're a New York City guy. You, you grew up a Jets fan. Yeah. And from what I understand, you, you went to Joe Namath's football camp right when you were a kid I did I did two years yeah <laughs> what was that like
1: I mean that was that was awesome man you know I got to meet uh Joe Namath and it was it was the Joe Namath John Dockery camp and uh you know I got to meet Joe Namath he came in and I mean it was fun it was up in Connecticut I had a good time you know I had a good time I ended up what stopped me from playing football was I, I broke my fingers and um i was like you know what i ain't trying to break no bones doing this stuff so i stopped playing football at a young age uh but it but the camp was fun i remember uh richard todd and all those guys i mean it it was it was just uh i got pictures somewhere i got to find my mother probably has those pictures but um but it was it was awesome it was awesome Mom, to meet Joe namer
0: yeah, that's a great story. Uh, what, a, what great memories that has. And speaking of great memories, uh, such good memories, uh, Chucky Brown, with you and both me and RG, and I know so many Rockets fans. It means so much to get a chance to catch up with you and talk about those memories. And, and you know, we, we went through all the heartache, and I'm sure you heard about it over the years in Houston in the 80s with so many close calls. So right. we really want to thank you for, for, for bringing the, uh, another championship to Houston. It, it was so much fun.
1: Well, thank you. And uh, like I said, Houston and North Carolina, here where I met Carrie, North Carolina, were the only two places where I'd ever live. You know, I I enjoyed my time down there. The people I met were great down there. Even when I go through the airport down there now, it's always somebody that comes up and remembers me. So, I mean, it's it's just—you know—Houston's a great city, and and you know, I loved—I loved my time there.
0: And we loved having Chucky in a Rockets uniform. Let's talk to another fan favorite. You guys know him because of his great fro and his great smile. None other than Moochie Norris. These days, Moochie's an assistant coach at Victory Prep High School here in Houston with another Rocket legend, Rodney McRae, who's actually the head coach I started this one off by asking him what he remembers about Rodney McRae, the basketball player.
3: The hot socks, point uh, four. we could play multiple positions, the could score. Uh, he just did everything out there. He did whatever they needed him to do out there. And I just remember him being one of the top players coming
0: out of college. You played with uh, Akeem and, and Yao. You're one of the unique Rockets that got to play with both guys. T- tell me what it's like and what you think back at as far as playing with, with, with two great big men like that.
3: Uh, it was an honor. You know, I got Yao when he was a rookie. You know, we had a great relationship. He ended up becoming my best friend. Uh, we were neighbors um, where we lived out of Windsor Park and Katy. Just having the opportunity to play with that guy, was, it was great. Um, he was like a throwback center to me because he could shoot it. He could pass it. He just loved playing the game. And with Akeem Olajuwon, it's like a dream come true because uh, when I was younger, I was, you know, in middle school, I was bigger than most of the kids. So I played forward and I wanted to be Akeem Olajuwon. I had the Atonic shoes, the jersey number, everything. It was just a joy just to have, you know, my dream come true and be able to play for the Rockets and actually play with Akeem.
0: What can you tell us about both of those guys? They're both kind of quiet. You you didn't know a whole lot about either guy. Uh, What are they like? Personally, what can you tell us that maybe people wouldn't know about Akeem or or Yao?
3: Akeem, he's a great teacher. Uh, He taught me so much, um, how to take care of my body, how to prepare myself, just how to be a pro. Uh, he t- he talks more than people think with his teammates and stuff like that. Money in the locker room, maybe not as much, you know, when we out when you're out in public and things like that. But uh, he's a great person. Learned so much from him. And Yao, uh, he was just learning from us because I was an older guy. You know, Yao came in as a rookie, and I'm, you know, that much older than Yao. And uh, he was just looking to looking to me for advice and what he needs to do and how can he be better and stuff like that. And we used to work a lot in the train in the weight room and stuff like that. So we had a great relationship.
0: You're like a lot of guys that uh, came through the Rockets. You've decided to stay in Houston. What is it about this city that, I mean, we just talked to Marcus Cambia a few months ago. He's here. Uh, what is it about this place that uh, keeps all the former Rockets t- staying here? Uh, it
3: reminds me of being at home in D.C. I'm from D.C., and um, it's the same kind of people. Um, they're, they're friendly. Uh, they get along. They care about you, and uh, they look out for you when you're here. And they're, they're, the fans are great. Uh, they're, they're great. And uh, you can't beat this weather. Well. <laughs> you know, it, it feels good not to have to put on boots and coats and hats and things like that. But overall, I enjoyed the city. It's a it's, it's a big place. Um, you know, it's, it's a different environment, and it's a great place to
0: settle down. Your nickname has been Moochie, I'm assuming, for a long time. Tell me how the name came about. How did you become, went, I guess, from Martin to Moochie? My, grandfather, so my grandfather's
3: favorite song was Cab Calloway's song, Minnie the Moocher, and that's where it originated from. I've been Moochie as long as I can remember, since I was a baby. Uh, my granddad started calling me that from the time I was, from birth, you know, my mom and him told me, and it's just stuck with me all the time.
0: Nobody calls you Martin.
3: One person called me Martin all the time, and that was my assistant coach, uh, the Houston Rocks assistant coach, uh, Rudy's Rudy's guy, Larry Means. He used to call me that all the time. He told me, I'm not calling you Moochie, I'm calling you Martin. And every game, every day, uh, he used to say Martin, 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 Martin. Sometimes I wouldn't hear him when he was calling me on the bench because I'm so used to hearing Moochie. But every now and then he'll crack a joke later on and say, I'm going to call you Moochie one day, but
0: he never did (laughs) What about Rudy T.? You know, talk about what it was like to play for him.
3: Uh, it was great. Players coach, a friend, a mentor. It ain't enough words to put in uh, what Rudy meant to my career because he really gave me my shot to actually get out there and play and have some um, have faith in me and my abilities to be out there on the court and uh, be able to get it done. Still remain in a relationship with him. I mean, he's great. I, I can't say enough about him.
0: That's Moochie Norris talking Rudy T. And, of course, Rudy will be a constant theme throughout this because he spans so much of this team's existence. Speaking of which, next up we have Rudy's old teammate, Calvin Murphy. Now, if you guys don't remember, Calvin was drafted by the old San Diego Rockets before they moved to Houston. And that's what I asked him about first.
4: Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, Bob Breitbart was our owner at that time. Uh, great guy. Great guy. And I had gone to uh, Mr. Breitbart and I had asked him, what was the possibility of me being a Rocket for the next couple of years because I wanted to buy a home? And he told me I was going to always be a Rocket. Well, two weeks later, the doggone team is sold to to, to Houston. And, uh, you know, he said oh, no, I was going to be a Rocket. He didn't say where. So I guess he didn't He didn't lie to me. But, uh, you know, I, I, I was shocked. Uh, I got in San Diego, and I immediately fell in love with it. Bought a nice little home up on Montclair Boulevard and uh, ready for a good career there. So uh, with that being said, uh, after the team was sold and uh, I got to Houston, well, all was, all was
0: forgotten and forgiven. What did you think when you first came to Houston?
4: When I was in high school, the great guy, Lewis, Hall of Fame coach, tried to recruit me to play at the University of Houston. And I told him at the time that I was never coming to Houston for any reason. And every time he saw me once I got to Houston, he said, you little SOB, you owe me four years. <laughs>
5: so,
4: <laughs> so uh, you know, I got to Houston, and once again, the first thing I did, well, after I got acclimated, I got into the community and started immediately doing work with the kids in the community. I fell in love with it. They adopted me, and it's been here 45
0: years. I thought you were going to say the first thing you did was get yourself a cowboy hat. It was it was a lot more of a <laughs> country town back then, huh?
4: My, my head's too small for those big hats. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what about you? You were drafted, and I believe you were drafted the same year as Rudy, right? You guys, you guys came yeah. into the league together, right? Yes, we came in together. Rudy was
4: drafted in the first round. I was drafted first in the second round, and and you know, of course, with my ego, that that bruised it. You know, first team all American three years, and uh, uh I had originally wanted to be drafted by the you know the Buffalo Braves because you know playing at Niagara University, been in the uh, Buffalo Niagara Frontier for four years. I wanted to stay around the area. Well, of course, they took John Hummer. And, uh, I saw John Hummer some years later and, and he, he said I sabotaged his career because the people in Buffalo never accepted him because they wanted me. I said, I'm sorry. But with that, with that being said, of course, uh, San Diego drafted me first in the second round. I had a, the opportunity to talk to, uh, perhaps the greatest coach I had, uh, as a, as a, as a professional, which was, uh, Alex Hannah. And, uh, Pete Newell was our general manager. They called me in, and they assured me that I was going to be given an opportunity to play professional basketball, regardless of what all the propaganda of my size was about. They, they had belief in me, they had faith in me, and uh, off we went. So, you know, I I was very pleased once I got to understand professional basketball, because all teams are not for all players. And the, and the Lord saw fit to put me with the right team at the right time so that I could show my ability to play the game,
0: I never get tired of hearing stories about you and Rudy as roommates. Can you give me one of the <laughs> PG stories? You got one something that we safe for kids. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think. That's that, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, uh, Rudy Samjanovich
4: and I, of course, were very, very, very close. Uh, we roomed together for ten years. Uh, we lived next door to each other for eighteen years. Uh, my my. Uh, daughter is his godchild, and his daughter is my godchild. So we were very, very close. But we were two complete opposites. Uh, You know, they say opposite tracks. That's what it was with Rudy Key and and myself. You know, Rudy Key was a horrible, horrible person to get up out of bed in the morning. And I, I think they put me together with him just so I could be his caddy. So you know, I would have to cuss him and push him and prod him to get him up in the morning. Well, this one particular time, I just wasn't in the mood. We were playing in Atlanta, and uh, we had a day off uh, before we played in, in in the Garden. So I tried to get Rudy, get Rudy up because we were going to go to New York that, that early that day. And Rudy called me some unbelievable names. So I took "The hell with him." So I let him go to sleep. So uh, we landed in New York. He was still in Atlanta sleeping. And I called him from New York, and I said, Rudy, you better get up. He said, oh, I'm right down in the lobby. I said, take your time. We're in New York. <laughs> he was pissed. <there.
0: laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you about Rudy as the player, because I, I think a lot of people forget how good a player it, he was. was. Oh, absolutely. Was, was he the best small forward in Rockets history?
4: Oh, yes. That, that's a that's a good question. Uh, you know, he
0: played, he played
4: the big forward for us. Uh, during my time, he wasn't a small forward. Hell of a, hell of a, hell of a rebounder and was a pure shooter. Yeah. And, and I took my time when I said that because I don't think people understand what, when I say pure shooter, uh, means, you know, you got a lot of people that can score and you got a lot of people that can get hot. But Rudy T was one of those that every night his shot was on. You know, they talk about, they talk about, uh, obviously when you talk about shooters then you're talking Curry and, and, and Harden. Well, that's fine. You can't touch him. You know when we played and 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 shot fifty percent, we had to beat people off of us to get our shot. Well, you can't do that today. So uh, when I compare Rudy to the players today, not even close. You know, anytime I needed me an assist, uh, I find Rudy T. and 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 uh, off we go. You know, seven time uh, All Star. Uh, he was our captain. Uh, he did it all. Obviously, and and and, and we got to talk about this. Uh, his 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 game, not his game. His 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 perception by people changed when he had that misfortune to to get hit by Kermit Washington, and everybody thought that is what killed his career, and that's not true because actually when he came back from that situation, he rebounded and shot better than he did before it. But he he I guess he played one more year and decided that that was enough. But uh, hell of a teammate. Of a friends, uh, the whole nine yards. You know, Rudy was one of those kind of individuals that if you didn't want the answer to a question, don't ask him, because
0: he's not going to lie. He's not going to lie to you. You said he was a big forward. Then would he, would he be a stretch for you think today, or where where would they put without him? Without a doubt, without a doubt. Uh, the, the greatest thing that could happen
4: to any team today is to have Rudy T. on the floor, being a pure shooter, and the fact that he can take you out twenty feet with that straight arm bang shot and uh, and set the world on fire.
0: Absolutely, he'd be a stretch for. Well, before we move on from the old days, I I do want to ask you about Moses Malone. Your friend passed away back in September. And, you know, a lot of people probably don't even remember Moses Malone today. You got to be probably at least in your upper 30s or older. How, How would you describe Moses Malone to to Rockets fans and to NBA fans that never got a chance to watch him play. Tell me about his game.
4: You know, it's unfortunate that people thought basketball started when Jordan came in. (laughs) There was a whole brand of basketball before the Jordan era. But Moses was, in in my opinion, in the top five of all-time centers. You know, he was MVP, what, three times. Uh, uh, He he did it all. He's a basketball Hall of Famer. Uh, He he was one of those individuals that, uh, as, as, as as a shooter, You'd want to play on the same side of the floor with him because he demanded, commanded, and and had to have a double team every night. And if you're on the same side of the floor with him, you can you catch your stats. <laughs> and I learned that early. Uh, you know, Moses, I'm going to tell you a quick story about, about Mo so you can understand who he was. We were playing one night, and uh, just before halftime, we were sitting on the bench, and he said to me, uh, My foot's broke. The hell, you mean your foot's broke? He said, you got like 13 rebounds. He said, Yeah, it's broke. Well, he had 19 rebounds that night, and at the end of the game, I'll be gone if his foot wasn't broke. Uh, today, you know, the player is out for six months. <laughs> you know? uh, and, 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 and most of them have told anybody his foot was hurt, more or less broken. And and that's the way his whole career was. He was able to play uh, at any you know, at, at, at any health problem. Uh, mentally, he was so so strong. Uh, players that had to go one on one with him was afraid of him. That the, one of the greatest centers I had the good fortune to play against was Jabbar, and Jabbar could do absolutely nothing with him, but was too strong for him. And and so anytime they matched up. One of the reasons why we were able to beat the Lakers when they were, you know, the Lakers of the Showtime era was because Mo controlled the inside.
0: Mo was a tough guy As a, sometimes with the media. He, he had his moments, but you knew him as a person. What, what, okay, what, let,
4: let, me, let me stop you for a minute. I'm going to tell you why he was a tough guy with the media. Yeah, yeah. He got tired of people making fun of the way he spoke. He was, you know, Moses, you know, uh, uh, people took, you know, the way he spoke as him not being an intelligent individual, which was far from what he was. And, and the media sometimes were very mean to him. And he took it personal. He was a very sensitive, uh, you know, very kind, very boyish type of an individual. And he just wasn't ready for the, you know, the way uh, the media could, could embrace or attack you, depending on the situation. And this is one reason why he shied away a lot of times not wanting to talk to the media or he was abrupt with them.
2: Calvin, wanted to ask you about the, the state of the game today. You just mentioned Moses Malone and, of course, Akeem Olajuwon, dominant Woo! centers. That's, that's the way that the NBA was in the 70s, 80s. You have to get a dominant center. That's the way that you win a title. Now, as you're seeing with the teams, I, th- there are very few dominant centers out there. The Golden State Warriors now are the model team with Steph Curry, bunch of shooters. Is it just completely crazy to you now how the game has evolved, and what are your thoughts on that?
4: Yeah, I couldn't play in today's game. Number one, I'd fall out in five minutes because you can't touch anybody. That's the first that's the first situation. But when you start talking about the style of the NBA game today, yes, it has been. When they, when they put that three-point line down, the game changed forever. Uh, that's all the game is consisted of. And, I you know, of course, I don't understand it. i made a Hall of Fame career out of shooting an 18-foot jump shot. I went for quality instead of quantity, whereas today people are, are excited about the home run shot being a three-point three shot itself. And with that being said, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a big man uh, to win the, the big games anymore. Of course, you know, Tim Duncan would tell you that's wrong, since he's won five five rings and he's still going strong in today's game. But everybody is facing is, is their offensive uh, uh, situation on the three, and then of course you got people uh, like Curry that that just just a phenomenal shooter. You can't touch him, so no way you're going to ever stop him. So I don't particularly like the NBA game today. It's it's too soft for me. It's the the, the, the officials control too much of the game. You you, you know you you got uh, dog on forty five, forty eight free throws a, a night, which I wouldn't mind shooting it during my era. But but you know the game itself is so toppy. Uh, I, I would like to see some of these players today that are today's stars and heroes play during the era where every night they were hanging on you, every night. You had to find a way to to if your job was to get 25 points to get it without the help of the officials. Uh, James Harden, uh, 14, 15 free throws uh, a night. Uh, and, and that's no knock on James, but the, but the, the fact that the bumping that we got uh, during the time would not allow us to get to the line where he you know the, he gets bumped and he goes to the line all night long. So you know that's a little jealousy. Uh, with today's game, but 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 the, the game itself uh, is 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 not a pure game anymore.
0: Well, you know something about shooting. Let me ask you: Is Steph Curry the best shooter that you've ever seen? No. Who's the guy? Well, there's a bunch of them.
4: There were so many people that could shoot the ball, but depending on how the, how the referees allowed the, the bumping and holding to go from night to night. Let me be egotistical. I, you know, I shot the ball as well as, as uh as Steph. Uh, uh, Curry, uh, Pistol Pete, who was my all time everything, shot the ball just as, as good, uh, as, 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 Curry did. Uh, downtown Freddie Brown was a, from Seattle, was a hell of a pure shooter. Uh, Earl of Pearl Monroe shot, you know, 50% and above, uh, uh, during his time. Uh, you know, I can go on and on and on of, of, of the players, and of course, You know, when I tell the young players that today, you know, they always say, you old relics always think you guys are better than us. Well, yeah, I do. (laughs) But uh, here again, it's the style of play that makes people who they are today. Could Curry have shot the ball that well with us? Absolutely, if we hadn't let him. The first thing we would have done was knocked him down two or three times. I know a little bit of something. I know something about that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Calvin, what do you think about the whole situation? Whenever Charles Barkley starts talking about the Rockets and and gets on Daryl Morey about analytics, where do you fall with that? Are you somebody that is in line with today's game and the focus on analytics? Or do you kind of agree with what Barkley says? And uh, just, just where are you with that? Well,
4: I, I I'm not an analytics fan, you know that you know, but you know this that that's a whole new brand of basketball, uh, you know, I, I'm old school. I'm gonna always be old school. But with that being said, I am a fan of Daryl Morris, Okay. Uh, that, now if, if that makes sense, I think he's done a tremendous job putting the Rockets together. Uh, you know, and and and, and with that being said, the analytics. In the stat sheets from my teachers, like Red Orbeck, when I was a kid going to his uh, summer camps, you know that doesn't tell you who gets the loose balls, who gets the rebounds, who does all the dirty work, and get and, and don't get any accolades from it. Uh, analytics tells you what side of the floor you can, you know you shoot best from, it tells you who you match up well against. We already know that. <laughs> So, so, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, of, uh, analytics telling me how to play the game. But, but Daryl Mori himself, I think is a master at putting talent together. Now, once you put that talent together, it's up for them to make sure that they play well together.
0: Tell me about Bill Worrell. W- w- tell me a good story, a Bill Worrell story that y- y- you love to tell about Bill. I, I got to hear one of those.
4: I don't even like Bill Worrell. I don't know much people think I like him.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the greatest guys you'll ever get
4: to know. I mean, he, he taught me the business. Uh, he came to me and he said, Murph, I'm interested in, in, in getting a partner uh, you know, to work with me on the air. And uh, I-, I like it to be you. He said to me, he says, you know, we're going to give you on the job. We'll give you on the job training. You can be you. As long as you don't use any four letter words, we'll be all right. <laughs> so, with with, with with that being said, uh, it, it worked like a charm. I mean, he was a joy to work with. He let me be, be. I remember one time they tried to put me in a, in a in a plane, and I used to call them White Boy Blazers. And, uh, and my personality disappeared. And the next game, Bill said, If you don't put back on your regular clothes, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> So so working with Bill was great. My mom my mom adores Bill. just absolutely adores him. She's eighty five years old. And the funniest thing she's ever said to Bill was one day when she first met him she says, Oh, you're not bad looking for a white guy you know? <laughs> 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 And Bill could not he laughed for three weeks straight on that one, you know. <laughs> but but Bill Warrell is a is a is a is a, prof, is a professional professionals, but I miss working with him behind that desk. Uh, we are still personal friends. When I was at the lowest in my life, uh, he was, he was right there standing beside me, holding me up. So he can't never get rid of me. And he's been trying hard too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What a joy it is to spend a little time with Calvin Murphy. Little did we know that Bill Worrell would be cutting back his announcing duties This year with the Rockets, Warrell and Murphy's voices as much as Gene Peterson and Jim Foley's are the voices of the Rockets for most of us. Let's move now to one of Calvin's old teammates, Robert Reed, who helped lead the Rockets to their first two finals appearances in 81 and 86. Bobby Joe, as he was also known, was a second round draft pick who I thought had eventually replaced Rudy T's spot in the starting lineup But Robert corrected me on that part of the story. I really didn't take Rudy's spot. Let me tell you what
5: happened. I was number 19 on the team. There was 19 teams in the NBA at the time and 11 on the team. And what ended up happening was, after we had gone through a five, six-game losing streak, coming back from Cleveland, Tom Nisalky told me at the airport, he said, hey, get ready, you're going to start tonight. And that was against New York, New York Knicks. And so the starting lineup was John Lucas, Calvin Murphy, Rudy T., Robert Reed, and Moses Malone. You never forget your first game you started. I had like 24 points, three steals, seven rebounds, being like five, six assists. And here's the thing. I didn't shoot no jumpers in that time. <laughs> if I even looked like I was going to be able to shoot a jumper, I knew I was coming out. When you got Lucas, Moses, Rudy, and Calvin, so most of my points came from just running the floor, getting layups. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: what, what was Rudy like then? What was he like as a, as a guy? Between those guys I just mentioned, one other
5: guy that I really got to call out would be, if you remember, Mike Newland. Yeah. Mike Newland and Rudy Key, being a small forward, they really kicked me underneath their wings. Rudy was one, he would not let me take that time off. He said, hey, even Mike Newland during practice, he said, hey, what are you doing? You're not bringing it. You're not bringing it. And, and so Rudy, you could see that coaching style that he was going to have in him. And the unfortunate part is we won four, I'd say five games in a row until the unfortunate incident that happened in L.A. That incident happened with Rudy subbing for me. He fell for me, and 30 seconds later, you know, it happened.
0: Yeah, you're talking about the Kermit Washington injury where he was p- punched, right? Yes,
5: yes, yes. And, you know, and it was like I said, he just, the buzzer rang, and it looked at me, and said, Bobby, I got you. I said, okay, you got Jamal Wilson. As I was walking to the bench, the action was going away from us, and I saw the whole thing happen. So we had something get ready to happen. You could sense it and to that unfortunate incident.
0: Yeah, he made an incredible comeback, of course, from that. And I want to take you to that finals run in 1980. You faced Magic in the first round, and you faced Larry Bird in the finals. Not sure if you guarded Magic, but I believe you guarded Larry in the finals. What do you remember about facing those two guys?
5: Well, I had Magic in 81 a little bit, along with Tom Henderson, who was our guard from the Washington Bullets. Moses literally put the one and twos on, on his shoulders, all right? One and two on the right, three and four on the left. And he took us, and, you know, we had Levy, Murphy, Allen, Levy, You know, we all came together. And the whopper, had the whopper. So we won that. The best series was when we had to go seven games against the Spurs. Then came Boston. Now, I ain't, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. That first game, I got dressed. Have my uh toast with some honey and hot tea. And before I walked on the door, out the, door of the hotel, I got on my hands and knees, and I said, Lord, now, you brought us a mighty long way, and we want to thank you. I want to thank you. Now, Lord, you know I've never prayed for victory. I'm not now, but just do this. <laughs> Give me the strength. <laughs> So this white boy Larry Bird does not get MVP because I got <laughs> to go back home to San Antonio. Say <laughs> <laughs> Maxwell got it. <laughs> so, but no, Bird, Larry Bird, I'll be honest, you could put the, the years from when he first came in till I retired first. You could put our whole sentences where we talked about probably on four sheets of paper. And it was a good game. We always pointed each other. We never really shook hands until after the series was over with. But he was the type of guy, a player, that if you didn't bring it that night, he'd tell you, "Just why don't you just go home? Just go home back. (laughs) Because he wanted the competition every night. And you have to respect that.
2: I wanted to ask about Moses Malone, one of the greatest centers of all time, and helped uh, get to the finals, obviously, that year. What did you think of his comments, and when they came out that he could take any four other players and beat the Celtics? Did that just rile up the Celtics even more? Or what was well, your response to that during the, the finals? Well, well,
5: well. When Moses said that, you, I knew straight up that was going to be bulletin board material. And I, I vividly remember when reporters came to me and they asked me about that. And I said, "Well, I tell you what." Now you remember now, we didn't have no cell phones back there. I said, tell you what, when I go home, I'm going to call my mom and see if I'm not from Petersburg. <laughs> you had to back the big fella up because that's what he believed in. That's what he believed in, and that's why he got us there in 81. Because Moses just got tired of losing. And, and the one thing that got us there, and he said it in his book, is Coach Pat Riley, is that when he only played Moses four minutes in that All-Star game that year, he said if I have given him probably six to eight minutes, he probably wouldn't have gone crazy like he did. But that that was the pride. That was the character that Moses Malone had and the love he had for the game.
0: Well, Moses retires, and then you decide you're going to retire I guess I was about 11 years old at the time. You were in the prime of your career. Uh, you said it was because of, uh, religious reasons you missed the 82 and 80, 83 season or the 82 83 season and, and hadn't really planned to come back. You were working at a cement plant and you were studying to become a fireman, right? How, how serious was all that for you?
5: <laughs> I'll be honest with you. Now that everything is over with, I can be honest with you and tell you this. Part of it was talking to Moses. And when the Rockets didn't want to match that $20,000 offer extra of Philly, and I kind of, he knew, and I knew what was up, that the Rockets were going to try to go for Ralph Sampson, okay? Yeah. Gina comes in last. I'm sorry. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it. So, you know, now it's all over with. I had a great career. And, yes, I went to Miami, my wife, my kids became a deacon in the church working like an Eagle store that was equivalent like a Walgreens, but without the pharmaceutical, and so closed. they're in a cement uh, factory. So that's what I kind of did. And I didn't even really think about it until Bill Fitch and Ray Patterson called me and Fitch said, see, his words were, hey, I remember how you played against me in 81. I like you come back and do that for me now that I'm a coach here at the Rockets. Me and the wife we talked about it, my first wife and uh I went back and we kinda picked it up. And you gotta you gotta realize too, we were three years ahead of schedule of what the organization, Charlie Thomas, Pitsy, Bill, and uh Ray Patterson was ahead. You know, it was supposed to be four years. That we were going to start being his team. We did it in three.
0: When you came back, you joined Ralph, and then Akeem came the next season. What was it like playing with the young Elijah? One? And give us your your best dream story, if you would.
5: Not only that, but you got to remember a lot of people thought the Rockets were wrong and and taking Rodney McRae instead of Clyde Drexler. Oh
0: yeah, oh yeah.
5: But you know, you got to realize this is what they were looking at. Okay, if we get Clyde. With his athletic ability and the player that he was, now you got a little conflict with Ralph, and then we got a team. But look what we did. We were able to to get Rodney and myself, and me and Rodney used to say, Do you realize we're the best small forward in the league if you add up our points and rebounds together? (laughs) So we were able to mesh as a team. Now, my best goal of our dream. I am coming down the floor and when I was playing the floor, And I heard his voice say, "Buddy, give me the bomb And I look, and I see three guys on him. I said, Dream, you got three guys waiting for you. That's okay. I dunk on everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I just gave him the ball, and he dunked on him. <laughs> and the fun part about Dream's game is when he started getting that getting in that groove, he'd get the biggest smile and laugh on him, and he said, bring it, Mon, bring it, Mon. And and you you had to enjoy it. You had to love his
2: enthusiasm and his love for the game. Unbeatable, that, Akeem. Uh, Unbeatable. Yeah. A year ago, Grantland wrote a story about the 86 team called The Next Greatest Team That Never Was. Everybody talks about those drug suspensions with – Mitchell Wiggins and Lewis Lloyd. But I know just as frustrating has to be Ralph's injuries. He was never really the same after the finals against the Celtics at the Garden. Do you feel like just having Ralph not get hurt would have kept the Rockets in contention for subsequent years, or were there greater forces at work?
5: I'm glad you asked that because of this. If we would have had the sports medicine that these young man players have today, Ralph would have been a, a factor, of a tremendous career. And definitely, he, you know, he got into the uh, 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 Collegiate Hall of Fame. But you remember that uh, horrible fall he had at the Garden. And Tanya find out that part of his hip, just that left side of the right, was an inch off. Then the next year, his knees give off because of that hip. So now he's got the inch off the hip. His left knee is halfway go. Then the third year comes the right leg. So, so no, Ralph was never fully healed to be the player that as rookie the year that he was his first year. That was the Ralph Sampson everybody knew was supposed to be there 12, 15, maybe 17 years in the NBA and be one of the top leading scorers. So, no, we missed that. With Lewis, Lloyd, and Mitchell Wiggins, Lord have mercy. How can can you put it? A lot of players had one, two, three, four times that they were, you know, suspended. Now, these two guys, one time, are suspended for life? One time. So, it makes you wonder what's going on. One time only, and now they're suspended for life. And that shakes
2: up our whole team. Yeah, because the Rockets with the Twin Towers there were poised to to make a run towards finals, especially after getting by the Showtime Lakers in that memorable series with Ralph's last second shot.
5: Yeah, but check this out. Who was the one that hit the shot that tied the game up? Hell, my joke. <laughs> 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 but, you know, I can tell you one thing about the Twin Towers. One game we are playing the Celtics, I got the great Dennis Johnson, you know, he passed, he, he passed away as one of the coaches with the, uh, um, League, the Austin uh, Toro. I let him go by me, a couple of drills. <laughs> he stopped. He said, Rick, what are you doing? And I pointed at Ralph for the team. I said, do you feel lucky? Cause once you go by there, I got me two points. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: That was Robert Reed on the Intimidating Twin Towers. You've heard some Akeem talk so far, but nothing yet on Ralph Sampson. So let's hear from Fran Blindberry. Many of you now know him as a contributor to NBA.com, but he once was the Rockets beat writer for the Houston Chronicle. We asked him about Ralph and the injuries that derailed his career.
6: Ralph Sampson was a great player for five seasons, four seasons, five seasons. Ralph Sampson averaged 20 points and 10 rebounds. And in any era of the NBA, you average 20 points and 10 rebounds, you're a Hall of Famer. Now, Ralph is a Hall of Famer, but that I mean, he that, that eventually got in. that was more based on his, his uh, uh, college career, where he's a three-time college player of the year. But Ralph Sampson was a great basketball player. He was not a classic center. That always frustrated Bill Fitch. Who wanted somebody who was in low post presence and Ralph was, you know, long and slender and didn't have a, a low center of gravity and could be pushed out of there. And, and, and Ralph was it was fortunate that the next year they tank again and they they get who can play center and Ralph can move out to the power forward. But you know that combination in '86 when they went to the finals, you know they they could they could rebound, they could block shots, they could get the ball off the glass, throw it down court, run on the fast break. That was a really a, a fun team, and the only thing that 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 has people now forgetting how good Ralph is was was the knee, the knees that went, and that all came as a result of a, a really nasty fall uh, one game in Indianapolis where he fell and smacked his head and, and tried to come back a little bit too. Soon and was compensating because he landed off landed on his hips and that started the deterioration of both knees. But you know, I I I I've been a defender of Ralph for you know well three decades now. Uh, he, he truly was a great player.
2: So if, if, uh, obviously, if they don't have the drug suspensions of Lewis Lloyd and Mitchell Wiggins and John John Lucas and Ralph stays healthy, this is uh, that that team with Akeem Olajuwon, the Twin Towers, Ralph Sampson goes on string of titles. In your opinion?
6: I don't know if they have a string of titles, but they're they're in the mix. I mean, you got to when you go back there, and I just was talking to somebody about this recently. uh, You know, that that's a team that it it throws itself in the mid 80s there, where the Lakers, the Celtics, the 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 the, the starting to come on with Detroit. You had Philadelphia there. The Rockets are definitely in that mix, and you got to remember now in '86 that that when they made it to the finals. Luke is already gone. Luke has already had his third strike. So you know, even in 86, if, if John Lucas is there and they're playing in the finals, what a lot of people think is the greatest Celtics team ever, and they they take them four to two, that if Luke is there and he's a very, very underrated and forgotten point guard, it, it, it could be a different story then. But yeah, if that, you don't have the, the Lloyd and Wiggins uh, drug problems and take it away, I, I wrote a story about that about 10 years ago when we had an all-star game here, like us in 06, that, 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 you know, I labeled it the Lost Dynasty. And, um, yeah, I, I think they're, they're at least back in the finals. I think there's a, there's a championship in there somewhere.
0: Interesting stuff from Fran Blindberry about that 86 team. If you want to hear much more about them, please check out our podcast this past summer with former Houston Post Rockets beat writer, Robert Falkoff. it's a nearly 40-minute conversation about the lead-up to that 86 finals appearance and what went wrong after that. Now, we also caught up to Falcoff right after Moses Malone passed. You heard some memories from Murph a little earlier about Moses, who took the Rockets to the finals in 81. But as Falkoff told us, Moses' dominance in Houston started even before that memorable run to the finals.
7: He was the, uh, the MVP a couple years before that when I think they had won something like 47 games. Then they got Rick Barry. They made a big splashy free agent signing with Rick Barry in 79-80, 78-79. Uh, Didn't quite get over the hump. 80-81 was one of the craziest years in NBA history because that team finished 40-42, and 42, but uh, back in those days the first round of the playoffs were the best of 3 and so they played the Lankers a best of 3 a great team uh, they were a you know a prohibitive underdog in that series but because Moses was so great he gave him a chance in that series and they wound up winning game 1 on the road then they lost game 2 at home and everybody said well you know LA will go back to LA and They'll finish it in the third game, and in the third game, the Rockets were a, a gritty bunch. They developed a defensive mentality late in the year, had to struggle just to get into the playoffs, and then they had a great player in Moses, and they wound up pulling out that game, and then it was just off to the races. They beat San Antonio in the classic seven-game series. They beat the Kansas City Kings in the, in the third round, went to the finals. And then, of course, Moses in the finals after uh, it was 2-2, two to two, nobody will ever really remember whether this was said in jest or exactly how it came about. But in order to fire up his team, he had a quote, uh, oh, I could take four guys off the streets of Petersburg, Virginia, which was his hometown. I could take four guys off the streets of Petersburg, Virginia and beat the Celtics. Bill Fitch was a Celtics coach at the time. And he was known for scanning the newspapers at length to try to find bulletin board material. And so it didn't take long for that quote to get into the yellow highlighter category. That was up on the Celtics bulletin board when they got back to Boston for Game 5. And, and Boston was pretty fired up. They blew out the Rockets in 5, and then they uh, ended up coming back to Houston winning Game 6. But... You know, as Moses said, hey, I was just trying to fire my guys up and make them believe we could go win. He had a great year, but but even better year, the next year was 81-82. He had a month in February of 82 that was, and I remember writing this, it was Chamberlain-like, something like average like 37 points and 20 rebounds for the entire month again, was the MVP. And then, of course, we uh, got to the historic trade when the Rockets didn't have enough to to put around him to win a championship. You know, and at that time, money was a big issue because, you know, the league hadn't become what it is today. A question in the organization was, could we keep Moses, who was going to command a really big salary and have enough money to put the pieces around him, or trade him to Philadelphia Philadelphia had Cleveland's number one draft pick, which was Cleveland was the worst team in the league. So they were going to possibly get Ralph Sampson. The Rockets wound up making that trade. It was Caldwell Jones and Cleveland's number one pick for Moses in a convoluted way. They did get Sampson. Didn't work the first year. The next year, though, they had the number one pick again. They got Elijah Juan. And so Philadelphia won the championship in 83, but a decade later, because of the root of that trade, the Rockets wound up winning a championship, so it was sort of a win-win deal at the, uh, for both the Philadelphia 76ers and uh, the Rockets. And that Philly team, he went to, of course, with oh gosh, with Andrew Toney and Maurice Cheeks and Dr. J and Bobby Jones. I mean, they were ready to ready to win. All they needed was a prolific offensive center. And he certainly gave that to them. And so they became one of the great teams of all time with Moses here in uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia.
0: And in more ways than one, he was a big part of the reason why Akeem Olajuwon was a Rocket and as great as he was as a Rocket, not only because Olajuwon ended up with the Rockets partially because of that deal, but really Moses was the guy that helped Akeem Olajuwon develop in, at those nights at Fondy Re- Recreation Center, right?
7: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Some of those legendary (laughs) summer nights at Fondy when uh, Akeem was, you know, a real thin guy, a defensive shot blocker, but didn't really have the offensive game. He went down and really toughened up uh, in those Fondy games, and uh, that helped him when he got to the NBA to handle the physical nature of the game and to become uh, ultimately the player that – that he would become and certainly Moses was a big was a big part of that he was just ahead of his time in what he could do offensively you'll talk to some of the great shooters Calvin and and Rudy and then he had a point guard when he came to the Rockets and Lucas and you know he made everybody so much better because he commanded the double team and even though he wasn't a great passer he became a better passer and so he he would get the ball out of the double team and got better and better and And then later on in 81, when they went to the finals, Robert Reed and Dunleavy were in there and and they were the recipient of him taking so much defensive pressure and creating open shots for them. And Moses was, he was quite a guy, didn't have a lot to say, uh, wasn't a big interviewer really, just did his his work on the court. When I started on the beat, my first year was 79-80 and George White was the Chronicle beat writer at the time and I was with the post. He didn't really know our names, and so he would just call us Post and Chronicle. So he would see me in the hall and, hey, Post, what's going on? Or he'd see George and say, hey, Chronicle. So, you know, he was uh, he was short and to the point, and, uh, but, but a really good guy and, and uh, one of the great players in NBA history for sure.
0: Always insightful stuff from Robert Falkoff, and it's only fitting to end our Rockets Classic Special with a tribute to the first Rockets superstar and Akeem Olajuwon's mentor, the one and only Moses Malone. That's our Rockets Special, but if you're a new listener, look for our Astros Classic Special podcast. It's a compilation of all our interviews with Astros legends like J.R. Richard, Jimmy Wynn, Bob Aspermani, and Alan Ashby. You can also find our Love You Blue Oilers special where we have interviews with Dan Pastorini, Elvin Bethay, Robert Brazil, William Fuller, and Spencer Tillman, among others. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, tune in or download our free Android app available in the Google Play Store. Thanks for joining us and taking in all the memories of Houston Rockets past.